Cult Collectibles is the number one site for historical items from the People's Temple, Heaven's Gate, Om Shinrikyo, and many other cults that you never even knew existed. Hundreds of hours of work have gone into curating our collection of unique and one-of-a-kind items from the dark history of these groups. We also have a large selection of true crime memorabilia from such notorious cases as Edmund Kemper, Jeffrey Dahmer, Charles Manson, and many more. We add new items to the site every week and post sales and auctions on our Instagram at Cult Collectibles. So visit us on the web at cultcollectibles.org today. Welcome to the Uneasy Train Explorers Club podcast, the place where curiosity is welcomed and no topic is too taboo to tread. I'm your host, Jonathan Doe, and I'm sitting here over Skype with Lawrence R. Harvey, star of the Human Centipede 2 and 3. How are you doing today, Lawrence? Yeah, I'm fine. Thank you. <laughs> it's nice to be here, Jonathan. Yeah, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. I think we're going to have a good discussion. I want to kind of start from the beginning. Uh, when did your interest in acting first begin? Uh, I, it began uh, when I needed some money. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I had gone to art college with uh, as a sort of painter and and w- with an idea of getting into film. Then when I was at art college, in the first few weeks, I realised that I was completely useless. Uh, working at a 16 millimeter camera or eight millimeter camera or whatever, and um, uh, but also in the third week the, they had like a performance art workshop, and I did a performance as part of that, which was using kind of um, sort of guiding the audience around to look at what I was doing from certain viewpoints, like a the point of view of a camera kind of thing um and uh yeah that that sort of uh the performance was effective and the tutor sort of said that um i should you know i should uh look into studying performance art as part of the it, the fine art course there was painting printmaking sculpture in the fourth area which is Film, video, and performance art, and sound art as well. So, uh, so yeah. So I, I I did that option for the rest of my three years at college, and and then um, yeah. So I was doing sort of work outside of college. I moved down to London because I was starting to get odd bits of TV work through people that I, I've worked with in the performance art world, uh, and they were doing stuff for children's TV, like characters on children's TV and stuff. So from, and because the performance art wasn't paying very well, and I'm not very good at applying for grants and stuff, so uh, it just made sense to sort of fund my art work through, uh, through working on TV and commercials and stuff. So I got an agent, and uh, yeah, that's, that's it. How did you uh, first become aware of the production for Human Centipede 2 and like what was the casting process like for that? 
Uh, my agent got in touch with me and said, uh, is this company in Amsterdam? They make, they make sex films. And, uh, <laughs> they want you to be in the, in the sex film. So I, I, I decided to turn them down. I said, well, what, why would they approach me? And, uh, and I just in a play called uh, The Man with the Absurdly Large Penis <laughs> at the uh, Young Vic in London. And, uh, and yeah, that, that is, uh, I, I thought maybe it's typecasting. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, so I, I sort of asked him what what company was it? it said six Six Entertainment, and I looked at their website, and it says Adult M- Adult Entertainment Amsterdam. So um, I said, well, what was the title of the, the film? And they said uh, uh, the Human Centipede Two, uh, and I I knew of the Human Centipede from it being on at Fright Fest. Uh, I didn't see it there, but um, I'd sort of read the reviews from Fright Fest and Fantastic Fest when it played in Austin. And I said, uh, look, I, it, it, it's not a sex film, it's a horror film. I just get back to them and say that I'm interested. So, so yeah, I went down to London for an audition and got on with Tom you know, really well. And, uh, yeah, that was it. I got the part. So what was your because human centipede 2 is so much more extreme and explicit than the first film what was your initial reaction when you were like looking at the script and all of the content that was involved with it well initially there wasn't a script i mean it was all in tom's head so so at the audition tom basically talked me through the whole uh whole film scene by scene and as he was going on i was going Oh, oh, so it really picked up on him. So it's like the lone dove syndrome that you see in films like the All Night Long trilogy and, and so on. And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. And then another bit where it's getting sort of a bit really into the sort of more kind of extreme sort of gory parts. Oh, that's just like society. Oh, so you've got that kind of interplay of like uh, humour and, and gore. And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, as he's going along, he's, I'm sort of coming out with all my interest in in sort of gory films and uh and japanese <laughs> extreme cinema i guess and uh and yeah we it was sort of i got i was i sort of got excited about the project and uh, i guess that sort of uh was what tom and alona responded to i guess that's great um in the early stages of like pre-production, what was your understanding of your character Martin, and how did you prepare for him? Was it was he a character that you and Tom developed together, or was it already kind of created on on the page and you just kind of adopted that? Well, you know, as I said, the, 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 I didn't actually get a script until like a couple of months before we filmed mm-hmm. so i had the audition in like february and we didn't film until august so it's probably about june when i got the script so i i was um but obviously uh, tom had sort of talked me through the whole thing uh scene by scene and i i was thinking about um well about sort of loners and sort of uh 
there was a film called Tony out in 2009 about a, a serial killer in London who uh, is kind of pathetic and a loner. And so uh, I was thinking about that and thinking about how, in a way, um, Martin's like this big baby that's not been allowed to grow up. Um, he's sort of dominated by the authority figures in his life. His father, who uh, abused him, who is sort of in jail, as it or you know, it's it's referred to as being in jail. And his mother's obviously a sort of complete harridan. So, um, so yeah, it's it's looking at Martin as a figure that's the way he is because of the authority figures in his life and being picked upon. It was also, um, I was very much thinking about how, like the audience should be on Martin's side or there should be something uh, likable about Martin. Um, and it's that kind of pathos of the character. Um, Cause you, you, usually when you get like a, in horror films, usually like the monster, there's usually something that's quite kind of a lot of makeup and present you special effect makeup um, to look horrible and disgusting. And yet you're sort of kind of touched by the, the humanity or the soul, you know, think about Frankenstein or Hunchback of Notre Dame kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But um, with Martin, obviously he's just a, an ordinary person that's capable of doing uh, quite disgusting things. So it, I sort of was thinking about sort of silent cinema and silent comedians, how like, Charlie Chaplin can hit somebody over the head with an iron bar and and you still like the you know, the tramp, you know, you're still on the tramp side, even though he's doing kind of quite vicious things. So um so it's very much about seeing Martin as the little man who you know, obviously he with um he's abused by the authority figures around him, so he is that kind of picked upon relatable kind of character uh, who I sort of then um, sort of logically, I kind of thought that his development was stunted. uh, And so it was um, a friend of mine had had twin boys and and they were sort of quite young at the time. And I sort of was out with them one day and it was kind of realizing how children, don't nec- that there's a disconnect between their emotions and the impetus kind of thing. So um, if one, because they're twins, if one would start crying because he banged his leg or something, the other one would start crying as well, just because I guess it's the thing to do <laughs> so, uh, or, or to get attention or whatever. So even though that, that kind of stimulus of the, her knee wasn't with the other twin. Uh, it was uh, kind of that kind of. It, it's almost as if you're trying on emotions or trying to pass as normal, um, or you know you're you're so undeveloped that you're not in touch with that kind of causal uh, that causal relationship doesn't necessarily match up. So that's very much what I had in mind with. Um, with Martin. 
Yeah, that's so, a... and, and also that kind of childlike element kind of helps uh, with the audience's sympathy for Martin as well. So. Yeah, my when I was watching the film for the first time, it really felt like he was kind of like a product of his environment, that he was in this really reenacting this film that he was obsessed with. He was kind of like using this hobby to uh, pull himself away from this horrible environment that he was in. And even the people that he abducts uh, for his project are all terrible people, too, for the most part. I mean, uh, they're all terrible or symbolic of what he wants, like like the family in the car. Um, yeah, yeah, like, like it, it's kind of something that he's been denied, so he wants it to be part of his project, so he can, in a sense, take it on. You know, like um, that whole thing of of sort of tribal warriors eating the heart of the. <laughs> brave warrior from that they've slain kind of thing you know that or eating the brain of somebody wise kind of thing it's that kind of ingesting and taking on the traits that you that are lacking in yourself kind of thing yeah and i really felt a level of empathy with him uh at least as in the beginning of the film as it developed but then i felt like he kind of took it to a point where he did some pretty horrific things yeah, the audience's sympathy has to end. Uh, you know, he's not uh, he's not the hero. <laughs> you know, uh, he may be the main uh, protagonist, but he's kind of not somebody to be uh, uh, not somebody to to completely empathise with. I mean, the, I mean that's also one of the things that that, that uh, Tom was trying to get across, which is that. You know, in, in the Q&As with the Human Centipede, people were asking, well, what if people copy what you do? And it's, it's like such a ridiculous question <laughs> uh, that uh, Tom just said, that's part of the impetus behind Human Centipede 2, that, uh, you know, you take somebody that's not a surgeon uh, and is trying to copy this ridiculous film to the best of his abilities using household implements <laughs> <laughs> and, and so obviously it's going to get messy and uh, not really work so. <laughs> yeah yeah I, I really admired that about the film is that instead of uh, doing some kind of uh, medication or whatever to, to make his, his subjects uh, unconscious you, you're just lopping people over the head over and over and over again. And I'm like, you're going to kill somebody. And <laughs> the thing is, when, when we were doing it, I was sort of doing different sort of hit, like glancing blows and making sure that it looked differently in how I did it. But then the sound effects come on and it's a kind of brain crunch. <laughs> I, I wield the, the crowbar. So uh, all the subtlety of what I was trying to do gets lost. <laughs> um talking a little bit more about about martin um i was wondering as an actor um martin doesn't talk throughout the entirety of the film and i was wondering how challenging that was to be able to convey his emotions and his intentions um without having any kind of dialogue at all uh well you know originally tom was gonna write dialogue it was gonna kind of mainly be 
Martin kind of copying Dr. Heiter's dialogue, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I, I did, when we did the audition, I, I just forgot to speak. So, <laughs> so, and Tom liked what I was doing, so we decided, he decided to keep Martin like that. I mean, Martin obviously does speak because he's, you know, contacted the uh, the agents for the stars of the first film kind of thing. Uh, but you just don't see it on screen, so yeah, uh, that's when I, I, I'm I'm quite quiet myself, so it's not. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't that much of a stretch. <laughs> well, I think it makes it really powerful the fact that he's getting uh, yelled at by people constantly, and you can just tell through through your facial expressions just what's going on through your head. And I think that was a pretty well, that- amazing performance. Well, I mean, the thing is, you know, even though you, if if you've got no lines, then the, the, it's easier, to sort of, in a way, it's easier to play the emotions because you know that's what's that they're your lines instead of uh, actual dialogue, you know. So, so yeah, it's show not tell. <laughs> so the film has obviously some really extreme content. Um, and like, there's just endless scenes that I could mention that 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 are involved that are very explicit and and require people being in very vulnerable positions. And I was wondering, how did you kind of mentally prepare for these different scenes, um, and, and just kind of get into character and be able to accomplish them? Well, I, I mean, the the pro- probably the most difficult scenes when when I was in the audition, Tom. Uh, Alona sort of asked me to be Martin at work, getting picked upon, and then looking in the mirror, pretending he's Dr. Heiter, and then uh, as they asked me to do something else and something else, it it sort of increased in intensity. So it was was like, right now, uh, imagine your mum sort of rips up your scrapbook and you... Uh, end up killing her and so we did that and then it was um right yeah uh, now you're going to rape this do you want to see how you would how would you approach uh, raping the centipede uh and so so yeah i turned over a chair and uh kind of went for it and it's just in a, in a way it's the same way because martin has to uh, as an actor, I have to think of the actors in the centipede as being objects, mm-hmm. and uh, in a way, a lot of the kind of performance art stuff I was doing is often using objects as a, a in a different way from how they're used. Uh, so, um, you know, like wearing a chair rather than sitting on it or something, for example. So. Uh, it, it was just a, a case of looking at these people in the centipede as an object. Because, I mean, in a sense, Martin has created this sculpture uh, or this work of art in his eyes, kind of thing. This is, they're, they're not people, they're segments of his creation, you know. So, um, so that's the way you approach it. But obviously, you know, when. Cut, when you call cuts on the on set, you're not you're not going to treat them as objects. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know you're going to be decent 
person. <laughs> you have to be. <laughs> One of the most powerful images for me in the film is when you finally create your centipede and you can hear the sounds of everyone screaming in agony and terror. And your character is almost, it's like an orchestra to him. And he's just like in this, he finally accomplished his dream. And just seeing you kind of almost dance around in glee that you finally you finally accomplished it, I feel like is so powerful and just shows the mental illness of your character. <laughs> and I think that well, was an amazing performance. Well, it, it, it's, it's, you can hear that the elementary canal is passing from one to the other, as it were. So it's, it's, that's the accomplishment. That's the sculpture finally realized as it were so uh so yeah that, that i mean that's that's any creator would be proud yeah. <laughs> um with all the scenes that are in place uh i mean you talked about kind of like turning people into objects but when it came to actually like shooting particular scenes where you're actually physically interacting with actual actors um is there any scene that really stands out to you in particular that was that was really challenging or demanding? Um, I, I, I think it's more more the conditions that were demanding. Right? The actual actors weren't uh, weren't a problem. I, I, I thought Emma um, Emma Locke was very very good, and it's like when when I was up against her, it's like right, okay, I've got to bring my A game to this because she was. Uh, very good and very uh, very committed. So, um, but uh, other than you know, just making sure you don't hurt anybody uh, through you know misuse of props or, or you know where you're positioning things, then it's it was fine. Um, I, I mean, I think that their biggest problem wasn't me. I think it was more that the dirty splintery floor that in the warehouse was, was the problem. <laughs> <laughs> that was more evil than martin could ever be i think so with with such bleak content uh like throughout the entirety of the film what was kind of like the attitude on set how did it feel like when the camera was turned off were were, were uh, feelings pretty high were, were you guys trying to like make jokes in between sh shooting to keep things optimistic or what was it like it's, it's not about making jokes because you've got to approach it kind of seriously. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there is this kind of element of grand guignol and the kind of dark humour in the actual, yeah, you know, in the actual film. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I think part of that is due to Tom's uh, directing style, his style on set, which is very excitable. It's like a a, a gleeful little boy, uh, <laughs> and like he'd get behind the camera and look, look and, and watch a bit and go, "Oh, that's so nasty!" Oh. <laughs> and you, you didn't know whether you, you, he was talking about your performance or the mold on the wall or what. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, he he, uh, he was just like a this kind of fizzing, uh, uh, full of energy and. Uh, I think, you know, if, if things were relies on set, it would be because of him and his enthusiasm and, and uh, exuberance. Uh, that's great. I mean, I'm I'm sure hearing that's nasty probably was a major compliment considering the kind of stuff. You yeah, were yeah, doing. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, so for Human Centipede 2, you got the p- privilege of working alongside Ashlyn Yenny, who played Jenny yep. in the first film, and I was wondering what your experience was like working with her. I, she, I, she's lovely. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't have any, anything bad to say about <laughs> any of the actors. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, the, it was, it was, I mean, she's, she's lovely. I mean, I, I sort of got to know her more sort of doing conventions and stuff with her uh, in America after, after the film came out kind of thing. So, so yeah, it's always a pleasure and uh, to, to see Ashley. <laughs> uh, Ashlyn and uh, um, yeah I don't know what to say she's very nice she's lovely <laughs> so. when the film was uh, finished and you guys got to sit down and watch it as a cast uh, what was your reaction when you got to see everything all finally put together and edited right so n- nobody saw it until the um, well I, I, I'd sort of done an uh, ADR uh, session, mm-hmm. and uh, there was screening it in black and white, and they said, "This is this is how it's going to look, guys," because we we, sh- we kind of shot it in color, and I knew Tom's going to alter the image. I think he wanted it to be kind of silvery and quite dour uh, in, in in kind of color scheme kind of thing. So, um. So I, I still didn't believe that it was going to be in black and white. Then we saw it in black and white, and I, it sort of made complete sense when you watch the film, uh, uh, you know, as it is kind of thing. And, you know, I, I, I kind of, because things were alight on set, I thought we'd make this kind of splatter comedy. And uh, then when you watch it, I, I kind of felt like... Like a lot, I felt like uh, there was a huge, yeah. I had a visceral reaction to it, a very kind of powerful. I felt pushed back into my seat, kind of thing. I don't think I, I felt anything like that. Uh, And I think the the last film I remember sort of feeling like that was uh, watching Once for Warriors and the the sort of um, domestic abuse kind of element of that, where it's kind of quite kind of in your face and. you know, it, it affects you as, as a member of the audience, which which is what I like. You know, I, I like films that that don't sort of you don't simply watch as watch as a passive member of the audience. You kind of it has an effect on you. You know, that's the kind of thing I like. So, so yeah, I was very pleased uh, that it turned out that way. It was a lot darker uh, than I thought it was going to be. Um, but then, you know, watching it, uh, having to watch it uh, repeatedly afterwards as it toured, and I was invited to do a tour of Australia with it and stuff like that. It, it so I saw it so many times uh, in the first year and a half of it being released that, uh, um, yeah, I don't need to watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, but it was it was some. Um, yeah, so I, the, the more times you watch it, the more you see the sort of humour in it and, and so on. So, yeah. Um, <clears throat> upon the film's release, it received, like, a lot of controversy uh, with it heavily being censored in, like, Australia and New Zealand and even your home, the UK. 
um, with the BBFC refusing to give it a, a certification for a while, I believe. And I was wondering, well, uh, what was your... Go ahead. In Australia, it was passed uncut. Oh, really? And then, and then when the BBFC... When it was initially submitted to the BBFC, they refused to certificate it. And they put out a press release uh, which went beyond what the BBFC are meant to do. So I think the BBFC were in the wrong. And when it's resubmitted, uh, obviously it had cuts made to it. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I mean, when we were filming, I knew there were certain scenes that were going to be cuts, mainly kind of penis scenes. The <laughs> 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 uh, sandpaper scene and the uh, part, part of the rape scene, I guess. Uh, so I, I kind of knew those were going to be uh, cut in the UK because the BBFC have a thing about sexual violence, and 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 uh, you know when we, when we watched it at the cast and crew screening, obviously it was uncut, um, and <clears throat> and and you know I thought those scenes were very powerful. But I, you know I thought that it's going to be cut for uh, to get a rating anyway. You know, so, which is which, which is normal, but um, I think the BBFC created a uh, a big deal about it, and then Christian Voice or Family Voice America uh, Australia uh, decided to um, campaign against it in Australia and ask for it to be. Um, Asked for it to be banned, and it got resubmitted to the to a board of uh, middle class women, uh, <laughs> which is the video or appeals or the film appeals board. After it had already been out for a, for two weeks, so um, so yeah, we did a tour in the two weeks before it had to go to the appeal, and at the appeal they just. Uh, Literally, uh, they said it, we can pass it with I think, 21 seconds of cuts in Australia. In the UK, it was, it was like 3 minutes 20, 21, I think. Mm-hmm. But in America, in the US, it was more than that. Uh, it was it was like a, another 30 seconds more than that for the for the cinema release in the US. Wow. Yeah, I I remember I reading that. that. When it's been on Netflix and and um and, and Amazon, it's been cut. It's the the cut uh, version. Um. So um, I mean, at least in America, you have the opportunity to release the uncut version on, you know, home video kind of thing on uh, Blu-ray and DVD. Then you know this before streaming really took off. What was your kind of reaction to all of the cuts to the film? Were you kind of disappointed that parts of your performance were, were taken out or was it something that you kind of anticipated to happen? Well, I, I think the, the BBFC cuts I knew was going to happen anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was strange that when it was, there were some countries that banned it outright, which were, I could understand, but from you know, it was things like Sri Lanka or uh, Thailand or something. You know, <laughs> so I, you know, I could understand 
uh, those countries have a history of, of uh, banning sort of extreme films. So, yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, I think the cuts in the UK version don't harm the film. Um, but even when it was released, cut in the UK, the bounty films who would, or Eureka who were distributing it put up the online, they put a digital version from a base in, from a company they had in Jersey, which is kind of offshore and re is run by different rules. So you could, you could buy the uncut version as a download, as a, as a digital download, or watch uh, the the cut film or buy the cut film on DVD and Blu-ray. Kind of uh, on the other side of the coin, like, yeah, the film got a lot of controversy, but the film also received um, a lot of strong, loyal, like a strong, loyal cult following. And uh, I was wondering what your experience was like, like the first time you went to a screening or the first time you went to a horror convention and you met your fans. Well, I mean, the, the first, the, the world premiere was the 22nd of September, uh, 2011. Uh, so we've just had the 10 year anniversary of Human Centipede 2. So the world premiere was at Fantastic Fest, which is a great audience to see it with. And there was such a demand that they had to put it on two screens <laughs> at the festival. Um, obviously, the first film had played there, and the the, set, the reaction to the second film was amazing. Uh, um, but it, it, it's a film that does divide people. So you know, even even at the, the festival, you know, there were people saying that they didn't like it and blah blah blah, and that's fine. You know, I think the first film divided people. The second film divides people, the third film in the series divides people, you know, so uh, it, it's just one of those things. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I, I think I, I'd rather have people have a strong opinion about something than uh, than, bland, than just <laughs> have a bland kind of, yeah, meh, it was all right, meh, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so in 2015, you would return to the Human Centipede universe to play your mm -hmm. role of Dwight Butler and uh, in the final sequence. And I was wondering how you ended up getting the role for that film. Well, I mean, about it, um, like, I think about six to eight months after, the, after Human Centipede 2 came out, uh, Tom had already kind of, started mentioning about sort of maybe having like um, myself and Dita as the kind of Lauren Hardy of horror in <laughs> a, third, a third film. Uh, so, yeah, I think it was always going to be kind of more of a comedy or a straightforward comedy than, uh, than the other two. And I, I knew that he didn't want to do... I think people... Uh, when you do one film and people are grossed out by it and then he reacts to the audience so if the audience is grossed out by it then he pushes that even further with the second with the second one and and then people are then expecting it the third one to be even grosser so he takes a uh he goes in the other direct it goes in a different direction 
and makes it uh, the most uh, politically incorrect film. Uh, but I mean, I must say, I think the third film stands up um, as being very prescient in light of Trump's America, I think. Uh, the, all the, the flag hugging that uh, <laughs> Trump was doing, copying Bill Boss from Human Centipede 3. Yeah. <laughs> and Germanic uh, um, heritage as well. <laughs> <laughs> like Bill Boss. I mean, Bill, uh, you know, Trump was Bill Boss as president, you know. That, that should have been, that should have been what <laughs> happened in the third film, I think. <laughs> Yeah, I really liked the the whole dialogue with uh, the Cuban cigars and uh, the patriotism with all of that. I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. Um, who can be more? Who can be more American? Than... <laughs> <laughs> um, your characters are really, really different. Like Martin is this mentally challenged, nonverbal character, and uh, Dwight Butler is this American prison employee. And you go from literally not talking to having a character that has a lot of dialogue and you have an accent. And I was wondering what were the kind I have of... all the plans and everything. <laughs> so it's a, a lot of exposition and a lot of kind of uh, plot, plot or planning uh, discussion. Yeah. And yeah, Tom wanted to do the opposite of... Um, of Mar- He wanted me to do the opposite of Martin. He wanted... Uh, I mean... Bill Boss is meant to be the opposite of the of um, uh, I can't remember <laughs> Doctor Heiter. Uh-huh. Uh, so he's, he's meant to be the opposite of Doctor Heiter. So he's kind of cowardly. He's uh, out of control all the time. He's you know, not. He's very kind of um, hot blooded, as it were, as opposed to cold and clinical. So and it's a bit of a mess, uh, and. Dwight is is it is the calculating and, and verbose one, I suppose. Yeah, I th- I really felt like your characters like, um, uh, like Dieter's character is this really loud, big personality in the room, and he like is presented almost like he's the villain. But at the same time, your character is a lot quieter and kind of behind the scenes. But I think your character is just as evil because you're the one with the the big scheme of doing this this horrific thing to all the inmates. And uh... yes, it, it was my idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it it is that kind of um, you know, it, it's like if if you look at sort of you know, the Nuremberg trials, it's the kind of banality of evil kind of thing. It's the the people that came up with the plans and logistics of how to exterminate millions of people are the, that's the real evil, not the uh, loudmouth bully boys of you know, the brown shirts on the streets kind of thing, you know. It's the people that, that come up with the ideas of how they are used uh, is, that's that's the evil. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, Dwight. Dwight is really the villain of the piece. Um, speaking of uh, Dieter Lesser, that's another or Laser. Dieter Laser. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Dieter Laser. Yeah. Yeah. Dieter. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. So he's another person from the the very first film in this in the series that you get to work alongside with, and I was wondering what your experience was like working with him. Uh, he's lovely. I mean, he, he's. 
if you look at Dr. Hyde from the first uh, from the first one, he's exactly like that, except more gregarious and operatic, and it's very theatrical uh, in a sort of but a very Germanic kind of committed way as well. So, so yeah, I mean, a lot of like what he was doing in in the third film is kind of based on movement work from Meyerhold and stuff like that. So it was kind of interesting to see him work. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's he's very much uh, he is very much a, a, a star in his own mind as well. <laughs> not 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 in a bad way. I'm uh, just uh, in the way that he lives the way that he lived uh life um or the way he, he would behave in life he's a larger than life personality kind of thing yeah um in addition <clears throat> in addition to getting to work with him you also got to act along tom six and i was wondering what that was like and just kind of overall like what was your experience for both full sequence and last sequence of taking <clears throat> direction from tom six well, it, uh, Tom, Tom's great. I, I really enjoy working with him. It, it's like at that initial audition, we got on like a house on fire. And I think that that's kind of continued uh, every time I've worked with him. It, it's, um, I think it was easier on part two because it was such a, it was a smaller crew and, and a smaller cast and crew. And it was a smaller, tighter kind of, uh, working environment, whereas in Hollywood, with where we were for part three, and doing on several different locations as well as a studio, it was um, <clears throat> there's a lot more logistics to go into it, and then the extras as well. So there's all the the extra logistics. There's more people around. There's a bigger, you know, there's, it, it, things just get bigger and more. And that creates its own compl complications. And of course, you're, you're not necessarily as close, working as closely or as hand in, uh, you know, hand in, hand in hand as you were on a smaller sort of smaller film. Like the second film, everyone was doing, everyone was working for less than they would normally get paid. And they were, they were doing like two or three jobs at once. And, and the on the third film, everything's got its own, everyone's, you know, has their own area of expertise and they, they all, you know, the, the, the crew is much more sort of bigger and uh, more specialised, I guess. So it's, it's just a sort of different beast. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> within that production for part three, uh, what were some of the challenges that you personally faced? Uh, were there any scenes in particular that you found to be difficult or challenging? Um, and like, it looks like you guys are like hot and sweaty. Uh, were you guys really shooting out in the desert somewhere? Was it actually hot where yeah. you guys were shooting? Yeah, we, we, it was a, um, it was a, one, one was a, a woman's prison um and one were the out the outside that was the, the insides of the prison were a woman's prison in i county and that was uh that was all right but it, it was it, i think it, it was i know robert lasada would had shot something else there before like a tv thing but and 
the thing he'd worked on before had they'd had to do overnight shoots and it was meant to be haunted overnight so uh so that had its own sort of <laughs> things and then um a lot of the outside scenes are um Neil, Neil were the the shack from Devil's Rejects was. Oh. Uh, so yeah, just near yeah, it was, it, yeah, it was kind of you know, it was yeah, and it was kind of like one hundred and fourteen, hundred and twenty degrees out there, and very little shade and. Yeah, that that was kind of uh, that was kind of tough, but it you know as again you know I'm not on all fours <laughs> <laughs> tramping around in the dusty in the dust and heat. So uh, at least I'm in my uh, in my suit, uh, which was hot enough. But uh, yeah, um... but yeah, I think the the hardest thing was just trying to keep. Trying not to lose that accent <laughs> and trying try to remember my lines. Uh, um, yeah, that 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 was, a, it was yeah. It was the two things in tandem. Either I'd remember the lines, but then not you know, drop the accent, or, or I'd have the accent but not the, the lines in my head. So it's just trying to keep a, well, everything going. <laughs> so, <laughs> Uh, I'm curious about the the practical uh, special effects in both films. Um, like you're execute, like you get killed in uh, the the third film. So I'm I'm imagining you had like a squib or something explode by the side of your head, um, and and just the different scenes that you have in uh, in part two. And I was wondering, what was it like interacting with the the effects team with all of that, and uh, what was the experience like? Well, with part three, the, the, initially the people doing the, the makeup effect, or you know, special effects, were they'd been on that was it face off the makeup special effects makeup uh, program uh-huh. reality show, and basically what they were coming up with looked like stuff that you know, a high school would come up with, you know, it wasn't, wasn't very good. And then they were basically told to leave. And then they, at the last minute, we had to get somebody in very quickly. And luckily we got somebody from uh, True Blood, the uh, TV show. Mm. I think that just finished shooting in Atlanta. And the guy came up straight away and, and, and did an amazing job considering you know, considering he was brought in at, at the last minute, so uh, so yeah, he, he really saved uh, the bacon, uh, you know, saved the film. But, uh, but it, I, I was much more involved with um, Dan Martin and uh, the team on doing uh, part two. As, as I said, you know, it was everyone was chucking in. It's a much smaller cast and crew, so it's easier to. Sort of get involved with with that, like and um, you know, trained armor and sort of doing the so the gun that Martin has was Dan's uh, starter gun, and uh, Dan's effects in part two are, are 
amazing. I mean, they look fantastic on screen as well, you know. And he's got on from strength to strength uh, in the sort of special effects makeup pool. So, yeah. I mean, I, 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 think, I think, you know, I, I do think he's one of the best uh, special, special uh, makeup effects people in uh, the UK. Yeah, I was really impressed with the the effects work in it, and um, and one of the one of the things this is kind of a segue to my other question is, so you can watch um, part two both in black and white and in color, and I think that the that the uh, color version and the black and white version are both very effective, and and I think that really says a lot about uh, the the practical effects in the film because whether it's in black and white or it's in color, it's still very powerful and effective. Um, but my question is, is that both, uh, part two and part three have kind of alternative cuts to the film. Part two, you've got the, the color version and the black and white version. And then part three has an alternative ending. And I was wondering kind of what your perception was on these different versions that are out there and which ones you prefer. Well, like uh, I was saying, we shot part two in color, so... <clears throat> I was expecting it to be this kind of, yeah, I was expecting it to be in colour, but it, I, I think it works, it's a lot stronger, I think, in black and white. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I also I also think that it resonates, I, th- I think with me it kind of reminds me more of like the kind of films that I like, so it's like, <clears throat> uh, you know, I'm big fan of kind of Rubber's Lever and Pinocchio 964 and uh, Thundercrack and Richard Kern's shorts and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. it's it's kind of, to me, it, it, it's more like that kind of underground, low-budget feel. Uh, it's kind of gritty and nasty. And even, even though it's kind of had a big release, it, it still manages to have that kind of underground film feel. I think part, part, uh, with part three, I think that the alternative ending is because Tom sees all three films as, I mean, he did a cut of all three films that run, you know, they run together, kind of all three films. So the, the alternative ending then takes you back to part one, so you could, I you know theoretically you could watch them all on a loop, mm-hmm. uh, or you, you could have them in a gallery on a loop kind of thing or something like that. So yeah. Um, well, my last question is: uh, Do you have any projects that you want to mention uh, before we come to an end, or is there anything that you want to say to your fans? Um, um, well, I I did. Um, what a, uh, a Batman fan film for um, Jim Campbell, uh, uh, who did Ripper, which I think is on YouTube. So that Ripper is a Batman, Jack the Ripper, Victorian era kind of fan film. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one that's coming out is 1986, and it's Batman and the Punisher, and obviously. Uh, there's a couple of Batman villains, of, and I play the Penguin. Oh wow! Um, that's that's. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's a fan film, so it's it's not 
uh, going to be commercially uh, available, but it, there was a Kickstarter thing to help with uh, finishing and production costs. But it, it should be available on YouTube, something uh, later. But I think uh, Jim's planning on doing another film, uh, another like follow-up to that. So I may be playing with Penguin again uh, after that. That's cool. Uh, other than that, I've just finished um, the house that Zombies built, and then just before lockdown, I did um, Eating Miss Campbell, which is Liam Reagan's follow-up to My my Bloody Banjo. And um, I... Oh, yeah, I, I'm also in uh, um, Sam Ashurst's... Uh, a Little More Flesh 2. Uh, a Little More Flesh uh, is really interesting. I mean, it's low-budget British, but it, it's uh, really interesting and clever. And I think Little uh, A Little More Flesh 2 uh, takes it even further. Uh, and it's kind of... Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, and, yeah, I think uh, people might like that. But other than films, I've, I've been doing a lot of work with Cadabra Records. Um, so if you like uh, spoken word uh, records of <laughs> of classic horror and weird fiction, then uh, you should check out Cadabra Records. Um, I think the last I had a couple of months ago, Ryunsuke Akutagawa's in a Grove um, was a release I worked on. Uh, in a Grove is basically Rashomon. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the story Rashomon was based on. And then the, the, I've done a Alistair Crowley short story, which is coming out soon, and then a triple album with uh, Cadaver Records, uh, which it will be out uh, next year, I guess. So, um, that's cool. for that. I was unaware. I was unaware of those. I'm gonna check check those out. Yeah, I, I've done a couple of uh, Rampo uh, stories, uh, the Human Chair, and um, Caterpillar. Uh, so the, the, those are I'm proud of. Very proud of those. Well, <clears throat> awesome, Lawrence. Thank you. I really enjoyed our conversation, and uh, I'm I'm gonna check out those other projects that you're working on. Thank you. And <laughs> uh, yeah, I hope, I hope you enjoy uh, 1986. It'll be the next film or film related project that's out. So yeah, hope you enjoy it. And that's in post production right now? Or... Yeah, I mean, it should be out in the next month or so. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll post about it on Facebook and, and, and Twitter. So uh, yeah. Okay, perfect. <laughs> All right, man. Have a good day. You too. Okay, take <laughs> Bye. care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Uneasy Terrain Explorers Club. If you enjoyed this podcast and are interested in learning about more of my work, please visit my YouTube channel, Cinema's Underbelly, where I analyze and review obscure and extreme underground cinema. Also, don't forget to check out Putrid Productions, where you can purchase shirts of my various projects, buy DVDs of the different films that I've distributed, as well as check out my most recent film, Barf Bunny. As always, thank you for listening. This is the Uneasy Terrain Explorers Club podcast.